great to be hanging out in your head or your car or wherever you're listening to this and welcome to another episode of the Mark Groves podcast. This week I'm excited because we are talking about emotion, about feelings and we as humans experience so many feelings but a lot of our feelings are not necessarily celebrated or socially accepted or all those things so many mixed messages that we receive as kids about feelings and from media, society, movies, all the things. And this week, the guest that I brought on is an expert at processing and expressing and just understanding anger. That, I have to tell you, has been probably the greatest struggle for me in learning how to express anger, how to do it safely, how to do it in a way that I'm not afraid of it. Um, and and we explore a lot of that subject those subjects in this episode and i think as a culture as a society especially in the personal growth world we're often very afraid of the subject of anger or not afraid but more so we're not celebrating the expression of it and i have to tell you that myself personally learning how to express and be in a feeling of rage has allowed me to dance very safely in anger. Anger that's clean, anger that's beautiful, anger that's love. You know, I was talking to uh, a friend not so long ago who was telling me that that they want to choose love. They don't want to be in the experience of anger to put that out into the universe, so to speak. And I said, love is anger. Anger can be love. Anger can change worlds. Anger saves people. Anger shifts people, anger moves people, anger when channeled in a healthy way protects us. And not only that, we can use the incredible energy of anger to change our lives and change our world. So I invite you to, if this subject at all is like, eh, or like, oh, anger, I get it. That's, you're just playing with language. Anger is aggression. No, there's such a line between those things, a, a big line. Let's dance in it. Let's understand it. So with, you know, before I get into that, a couple of things. One, wherever you listen to this podcast, if you could go and give it a five-star review and a written review that is so helpful. And any episode that you've really loved, if you can share and tag me on Instagram, so much gratitude. That really means a lot for me. And also, if you are going through a breakup and you're not really sure what to do, or you have someone, even an ex from a long time ago, where you're like, I should be over this, you're not, and that's okay. So if you have someone that's still on your mind or they're holding you back from connecting today, I created an amazing, it's a brilliant program that is for helping people understand, process, and move through past relationships. And I'm in your inbox every day via email, and then you have weekly exercises. It's five weeks, and it's called the Breakup Recovery Program. And all you have to do is go to bit.ly, so B-I-T dot L-Y slash breakup rebirth. B-R-E-A-K-U-P-R-E-B-I-R-T-H. So bit.ly slash breakup rebirth. If you've just been having a hard time letting go of someone, I, the reviews have been phenomenal. It's changed people's lives, allowed them to let go of things that they didn't know they could. And you know, the last thing I want is your heartbreak to be a prison. It shouldn't be. It should be the invitation for you to really get to know yourself better and to get clear about boundaries and this invitation to give a full birth to who you are. And part of that is using emotion. 
in a well-directed, intentional way. So without further ado, here is the episode with Alistair, also known as Angerman. I am very excited to have my good friend Alistair Moose on the podcast from Moose Anger Management to talk all things emotional. What do you think? Is that accurate? <laughs> it's true. There's there's a lot of emotion when people call me because nobody calls me unless something significant has happened. Very, very few people call just to be proactive. Yeah. By the time someone has reached out to a company called Moose Anchor Management, they likely are, I'm guessing, experiencing the expression of aggression rather than anger. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. Usually, there's been either aggression or, surprisingly, a lot of really nice guys and nice women call us who have been very giving and even loving and kind and generous to a fault, where they've given so much of themselves away that uh, the resentment and the shame builds up, and then it builds up enough that it explodes all out at once, or they they get sick. Mm. Okay, so this, I think, is so topical to, especially, I would imagine, the type of person who listens to my podcast, which are people who are really concerned about how they show up to relationship, really um, think about other people a lot, think about their own communication and their desire to be better. And I think what can happen in a lot of ways with that is that can, if not put in check or having boundaries around those really loving, giving behaviors it can be codependency. You know, if it's like, if someone identifies as an empath, you know, being empathic Mm -hmm. is great. But if you're empathic without boundaries, you're kind of fucked, you know, because you're going to get walked on, you're going to be a doormat. Yeah. And, and, and it's going to build up and it's going to turn into something ugly and all that resentment and shame, how, whatever it does, it will move through us in one way or another, either it all builds up and, and explodes out of us or it comes out sideways through uh, manipulation, through sarcasm, uh, or it, it'll just stay in us and turn into ill health sickness. So you see that a lot, hey, where the emotion gets stored up, you know, I guess, the, you know, that's the etymology of the word depression is to depress things. Yeah. And so you see that a lot where people hold on to feelings and then what sort of illnesses, yeah, I mean, I'm, I know you're not a medical doctor, but is there a certain normal, like a, a common illness that you see within those? Well, one of the one of the common ones is is what happens in the belly. Right? If we're feeling a lot of intensity over and over again, and the body just starts to go into fight or flight, the blood vessels leading to the stomach constrict. So it's like the body's shutting down the stomach, which is why when we get under really stressful situations, people feel it in their belly. Mm. or and even more so if they're in a, a relationship that feels kind of out of control, that there's a lot of drama, it shows up in the belly and the belly represents worry, worry and anxiety. And so if enough of that shows up, then people end up getting irritable bowel syndrome mm. or IBS. So it's frequent that people have come to me and, and, and I've described what happens in the belly is if we're escalating uh, regularly because of all this drama and stress, then the blood vessels constrict and you shut down your stomach. But there's a, this cellular lining in your stomach and replaces itself every three to seven days. 
and we need new cellular lining. The, the, the stomach's the only place in the body that's uh, healthy when it's acidic, mm-hmm. right? So uh, we need new cells in, in you know, the, the lining of the stomach. And if we're too stressed out uh, and there's too much going on over months or years, then this breaks down and we don't get enough rejuvenation there. And then we end up getting a, you know, a hole in the stomach, uh, irritable bowel syndrome, gastritis, uh, acid reflux. But it's, uh, it's typically a sign that we're paying attention to somebody else, somebody else's stuff and all the stuff that we have no control over. And I've had multiple people, pe- multiple people tell me about how they changed something significant and how they were dealing with the relationship, whether it was uh, interpersonal, like at, at home or with uh, their partner or at work, where they started to look at their own stuff and take control of their own response. And all of a sudden, the stomach just completely changes, like mm-hmm. from being crazy irritable bowel syndrome, need to go to the bathroom all the time to perfectly back to normal. Isn't that crazy? It shows you how connected our bodies are, you know, to our emotional state. And when we suppress them, as you were saying, you know, the gut function or when we start to get gut dysbiosis and uh, leaky gut and irritable bowel, all these different things. I mean, the body's not concerned about digesting when it's in five fly freeze. You know, <laughs> the last thing it's doing is like, hey, the steak we had earlier, we should probably get rid of that right now. No, it's like survival, blood to the extremities. I know in um, there's some research on that couples who have high conflict relationships actually have um, increased uh, leaky gut and also which, of course, leads to more inflammation and inflammation leads to disease. And it's I know it's in Gottman's research where they put physiological response measurements on couples who aren't even in conflict, but have a high conflict relationship and their body's like it's sitting beside a tiger. So you think of, I think for anyone listening, if you're, if you grew up in a place that was really intense, you know, you were saying that when they're in this relationship for a long period of time and the body just becomes so constricted, do you see a high correlation of that? Because I would imagine that pattern of behavior of caretaking, of putting other people's needs ahead of your own, all those types of things probably comes from a childhood where people care took a, an addict parent or a sick parent or everyone in the family because the parents weren't even around. Like, is there a certain archetype or like a story that is common in the people that you see? Well, t- typically the person, you know, we all learn how it's like our default is to replicate whatever our environment was like growing up into our current circumstance. And so if the boundaries were really poor uh, growing up, then our, our, unless we're, we're really taking the time to look at this and become more aware so that we're conscious that our default is to avoid or to overreact, unless we're aware of that, then we're just going to keep on doing that. And, you know, myself, like many of the people that come my way, um, the boundaries were not ideal growing up by, by any stress. You know, I, I have uh, all sorts of stories in my head, like my, my mom saying, you know, when you guys finish high school, me and my two brothers, I'm going to divorce him. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's like, right. <laughs> 
And, uh, you know, and it, I didn't blame her. <laughs> I, I was supportive of her, actually. But, but Did you want you know, her to wait? I don't know. I just wanted to be a kid. Yeah, you didn't want to have to I, think I, about that. I didn't want to think about it. So I just more or less avoided that uh, as much as I could because it was unpleasant. And there was no, there was no resolution. I, did, I didn't have the power to do anything. So I, I did more of what my dad did, which, which was just avoid and not express the emotions that were there. And that, that's true for so many of the people that come our way is they didn't learn how to express themselves honestly and clearly and, and, and assertively. They picked up whatever was around them growing up. And for me, that, that also includes in utero. Whatever was happening around your mom when you were in utero is going to, that, that's like home, right? Yeah. Especially in that third trimester, the baby is so, uh, feels everything. Very attuned. The, mom, the, the mom's going through um, pain or fear or, or anger, and the baby's going to get all that adrenaline flowing right through his little body. It's going to feel all, the, all of that resonance. And then unwittingly, we grow up and we replicate that. We find somebody who also had that uh, kind of thing resonating around their mother and typically their mother and father. And then we just recreate it. And so you can see throughout families, the same dynamics occur over and over and over again. That's common anyway. Mm, And I mean, it's fascinating because you start to see how much well, one, how you said how people, how the family deals with conflict and the family deals with emotion. And if you have a father or, or a mother who just plugs it, it's interesting because a lot of people will say, oh, well, you know, our family didn't fight when we were growing up. Like I've had a client say that to me. It's like everything was fucking rainbows and unicorns. You know, and I was like, that's not a good thing because you never really saw conflict be managed strategically and create more intimacy. It just like no one ever talked about hard things, and so yeah. Well, and the and the 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 parents always address conflict behind closed doors. So I never saw my parents fight. Isn't something unusual for me to hear? And I said, oh, that's too bad, because it's much better if you actually got to see them fight. Maybe argue would be a better reason. Go through really stressful events, but be respectful and honest and direct and courageous in the way you're speaking your truth. And then things actually can get resolved rather than what I saw, which was, you know, there was blow ups here and there, but nothing ever actually got resolved. They changed slightly as the the years went on. But I was reading a, uh, I'm reading a book by the Gottmans right now called eight dates. And it's about eight essential conversations that all couples need to have. And one of the lines that I loved, I read it, was reading it last night. Uh, one of the lines was, if you never fight with your partner, you're doing relationships wrong. <laughs> and I, yeah. Something like that. And I thought, isn't that yeah. so true that we have, we need to normalize conflict. It's just how we handle conflict that is a skill set that you teach, that we all teach, you know, in, within this work. And I wanted to know, because I, I think one of the emotions and the reason I wanted to have you on here is one of the emotions that the emotions that we're so afraid to feel and express is anger. And so when, and I think for men, you know, at least we're like in some ways, and I'm generalizing, socialized to either express 
happiness or it's socialized okay to express aggression, but not necessarily like clean, healthy anger. And I know for some people, they say like, anger is not clean. No, anger is absolutely clean. People who are afraid of anger because they've experienced aggression have a hard time relating to it. But in your experience, because um, you said that you get a lot of nice people, like nice guys, nice girls. And so does anger get, um, does it masquerade as kindness a lot and, and like overt laying down doormat type kind of behavior? And then the other extreme where you see so like, are those the two extremes you see, overt aggression and overt kindness? We also see a lot of people that have been manipulative. Mm. So that their their anger comes out sideways and turns into sarcasm or uh, passive aggressive, right? And passive aggressive is where somebody acts in a passive way, but they're doing it in a manner that will hurt or control the other person. but. You know, those are the, the sort of the three. It's holding it back and being passive and trying to make everything nice and just avoiding the conflict. And we, we can then even do this in spiritual garb and say, oh, I don't have an ego anymore. Everything's good by me, right? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, right. <laughs> um, they're, they're doing that out of ego, right? It's still out of power. I want to look good, right? So, or, Mm, so it creates or it builds up in it yeah well yeah i'm better than you because i never get angry i'm more spiritually evolved because i'm not i'm not expressing anger i'm expressing love which is bypassing anger which is bypassing a normal human expression of like no that's not okay what you said or did or whatever well and, and anger has this uh, amazing life energy in it right Anger moves us. It motivates us to it's speak worlds, up. changes lives. It rescues people. It, you know, it's yeah. amazing. So it, it moves us well if we relate well to the anger. Because I grew up and I was either afraid of my anger or it was all coming out at once. Because I didn't see any other way to deal with it. Because nobody taught me what to do, which is, Part of the reason why I got into anger management was watching people do a shitty job with their own anger. And I wanted to know. I wanted to find out. And and uh, and part of the reason I love doing this work is because, because there's always more to learn. And when people start allowing themselves to feel that anger, be thoughtful, you know, be connected to their heart and their head and their, their emotional uh, intelligence, then then they can express it in a way that allows them to be fully in charge of themselves. And that becomes their goal is to be really in charge of themselves, self-controlled rather than reacting to all the things that happen around them, whether that's uh, at home or driving or even all this stuff that happens uh, on the news. Who's in charge of me? Am I in charge of myself or am I just, you know, affected by the, however the wind changes around me. <laughs> Which is a bit of that unlayering or healing of codependency is like, how do I feel versus how you feel? How does the world, what's going on in the world? And does that determine what's going on in me? You know, those, yeah. you're not, you're so dead on that it is about like, how do you react to the news? How do you react to someone cutting you off? How do you, which I think I have an opportunity for growth and expansion in my driving because um, I do sometimes get triggered by like 
Many of us do. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, so I have moose anger management all over the outside <laughs> of my vehicle. So that has an impact. Yeah, you're not able to be like flipping the bird and stuff. Uh, but I think the 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 one thing I wanted to have people understand is how would someone know if they're not good at expressing anger or it's living suppressed within them? I mean, obviously, if they have gut stuff going on, there's likely some sort of uh, fight, flight, freeze sort of locked in their body, perhaps due to their environment, likely due to their environment, but also likely due to perhaps their childhood. But like, what are the common things that someone can identify that they are not expressing anger or not very good at it outside of overt aggression? And then what would overt aggression look like? But so first, how how would it be yeah. frustrating? Well, and and that's part of the work we do is helping people become more aware of it. And with the men, like many of the men that come to see me, I learned to be kind of numb to my body growing up. But when I talk with uh, men and, and women about this topic, it shows up in the body. It shows up as a constriction in the chest or in the shoulders, you know, obviously in the gut, as we've mentioned, but also in the, the solar plexus, uh, in our back, in our, in our neck, in our throat. Um, we carry a lot of anger in uh, the jaw. And a lot of a lot of people grind their teeth, wear uh, uh, wear a uh, mouth guard at night. You know that 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 includes me. Yeah, me like, too. As, uh, as, hands as, up, hands up over here too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As as much as I'd like to, you know, have all this stuff totally figured out, that's not true. Like I think we're all this work in progress. Yeah. So it it affects our body in in many different ways, but it it also affects our thought. So. When our thinking is uh, cynical, jaded, uh, when we're thinking in all or nothing terms, like, all right, something's going on there. If we're blaming, if we're defensive. And so we get to know this side of us, you know, where we're run by anger in an unhealthy way or in a destructive manner. And the more aware we are of this, when we start going down that path, then we can do something about it. But we, we have to out ourselves and say, yeah, part of me wants to rip your head off or scream and yell or have a temper tantrum right now. But instead, I'm going to breathe for a minute and maybe I'll take you know a moment to collect my thoughts so that I'm more in alignment with who I really am, my core values, my heart, you know, when I'm thinking things through. Because in that moment, people just are going into survival right we when we're when we're escalated whether we're withdrawing and shrinking or where whether we're blowing up all over somebody it's like we're disconnecting from our heart and then literally the blood vessels are, are constricting to the higher reasoning part of our brain and we're left with the you know with the limbic <laughs> emotional part of our brain the old lizard response but it's the limbic is just connected to that reptilian part, right? So it's all survival, all or nothing. And that, that part works really well if we're actually under physical attack. So the body doesn't know the difference, whether we're under a physical or an emotional attack. Mm. But when it feels that we're under attack, we have less access to the higher reasoning part of the brain. And then we act dumber, right? We just, we aren't as smart. We don't think things through. Yeah, our problem solving yeah. is shut off. Our 
you know, reasoning, all of those things, resources. If we, to, yeah, if we escalate yeah. enough, even the, um, the memory, you know, the part of our brain that, that remembers things even shuts off. So we'll, we'll get choppy memory or people can even black out even without alcohol if they escalate enough. Wow. To a space and of rage then, I'm guessing? that's like Because the body's going into survival. Mm. Like in pure survival, we don't need to waste energy creating memory, let, let alone seeing the big picture or anything like that, wow. if, if we escalate high enough. So there's a, a story uh, from a Malcolm Gladwell book, and there's a cop, and he's standing beside another cop and uh, in San Francisco. True story. There's a guy sprinting at them, and from underneath his trench coat, he's pulling a machete. And he's running really fast and he's really close. And the cop on the right says, as he, as he pulled his gun out, everything went dead quiet. And he lost all his peripheral vision. All he could see uh, was the, the head and the torso of these guys, much like the targets that they practice shooting at. Mm-hmm. And he didn't have to think to pull his gun out. He'd, you know, yeah. done that a thousand times yeah. in practice. And everything slowed down. And he shot at the guy twice, and the guy fell down as he was running at him, slid into the cop, and the cop says he doesn't remember uh, the guy sliding into him. He just remembers the moment when he was standing over top looking down at this guy and recognized that he was no longer a threat. And at that moment, all of a sudden, his memory comes back, and he can hear the spent shells from the bullets that his partner had fired. So the guy standing right beside him had fired his gun. This guy didn't hear a thing. He didn't see anything. He was just purely in survival. And that that served his survival. So in, in a moment like that, th- this works great because we don't need to yeah. philosophize in that moment. Um, but most of the time when people come to see me, they escalated because they started, you know, literally people have been, uh, what started it was talking about toilet paper mm-hmm. or something insignificant, but there's a whole history of resentment and shame and guilt and et cetera, historically. And all of a sudden their body's escalating and maybe alcohol is involved, which can add fuel to that fire then they're reacting in a way as if they're actually physically under threat when they're, when they're not. Yeah. It's uh, to see the body go into that level of an automated response, especially when there's so much stored up stuff, you know, I think for, for you listening, wherever you're listening to this, to recognize that most of the things we fight about, we fight about the content, but it's not about the content. It's not about the toilet paper or not changing the role or not leaving the seat down or up or whatever your strategy is in your home. But it's, it's, it's about what it means. Like, what is it triggering within? Like, do I not feel considered? Do you never listen to me? Do you never, you know, am I not important to you? And you're right. If it's that buildup of tons and tons of times where you didn't feel important, which I think a lot of the times too, is about the person not prioritizing themselves and not having boundaries and communicating expectations and needs. You know, it's and sort of a dance. Feeling, feeling not heard, not seen, and not valued. And so I've been asking groups of men what makes up communication. 
And I've been asking this question and writing their answers down on a flip chart over and over again since 95. Oh. And, and one of the things that happened around the year 2000 was when I asked men what communication, what was involved in communication, and partly maybe this was partly about me, is they started to say listening. Oh, they hadn't. <laughs> Pre-2000, we weren't a listening gender. That, that, that's right. Nobody said listening. I don't know what happened. But after that, men started to say listening. And we we have, uh, especially in our groups, but individually as well, we have people come up with interpersonal goals. And it's uh, quite frequently that goal is to listen just for the point of ensuring that the other person feels truly heard and seen and valued. Because if you really hear and see and value your partner and they experience that, that's like at least three quarters of it, maybe even 90% of it. Even if you don't agree in the end, if both people feel really heard, then, you know, then the anger is, you know, going to be healthy if it's present at all yeah i remember in uh reading about conflict resolution and how couples can best do that they were talking about how some of the strategies are based on conflict resolution for countries that i can't go into convincing you about my point of view till i can reiterate and explain your point of view first to your satisfaction which i thought was really neat you know you're saying Okay, well, if we can sit down and listen and just empathize and not make it about us and not, you know, need them to see our side, but allow their experience of their world to be validated, then yeah. that's 90% of good communication. Now, I totally agree with that. I remember when I was young, my dad said to me, I, I wish he had said it to me when I was younger, but he said when I was like 25, so I guess that shows how old I am, that I was young. Um that uh, the next time your your partner uh, expresses something to you, maybe you could ask her if you, you she wants you to just listen or to actually help. And I was like, uh, sure, Dad, that sounds great. So I didn't realize the actual immense amount of wisdom that was in that statement. Yep. So then I tried it. I remember my partner at the time expressing something to me, and I remember saying, like, do you want me to listen or do you want me to help? And she was like, uh. I can't believe you're like, you could see in her face that she was just in utter shock that I wasn't trying to fix it. And she was like, <laughs> I want you to listen. And I was like, okay. And then the conversation ended and she was like, thanks, you know, like blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, why didn't he tell me this when I was like 18? That would have been so much more useful. I'm, I might still be in that relationship, you know? Um, so it's yeah. interesting to see that the, I mean, I think it is very male to want to fix things. Well, that's, that's uh, what many men do at work is all they do all day long is fix things. A problem comes up, they fix it. Another problem comes up, they fix it. And then they go home and they forget to, uh, you know, shift hmm. into relationship is more important than fixing here. Yeah, like having a partner feel heard, you know, and not trying to fix those parts. It's hard. It's hard, I know, to take away or to take a step back from that role because I've certainly had to learn how to do that too, where I see someone suffering mm -hmm. and you just want to help them, but they actually don't want your help. They just want you to be a space. Yeah. They just want to be heard and seen and valued. And 
know, isn't that what relationships are about? Well, yeah, right. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? <laughs> this seems if only this was taught and modeled uh, everywhere in the world, which is the good thing is it's, it's beginning to be. Yeah, people are talking about it. And hey, men are saying listening when I ask them. <laughs> this is a good sign. <laughs> now, we actually write down, uh, I follow up the communication and I write on the flip chart, listening. And I say, well, what makes up like healthy listening? So then we go into all of that about you know, having eye contact and being, you know, body language and really hearing the person without trying to fix it, as you've said. And then, then the next part is that you listen to yourself, to your body, as you're listening to the other person, right? So the other person says something and it hurts and you feel that in your body you know, in your in your chest or in your gut or what have you, or on the flip side, you feel really relaxed and, and at, at a home and at peace and maybe even in alignment with what the person is saying, and you feel that in your body, then we're we're connected with ourselves and we can say that out loud when it makes sense to with the other person so that the other person knows how it hits us. Because it does hit us physically and if we're aware of that then we can acknowledge that at some point when it makes sense to uh, so that the other person understands what's actually going on for us as well and often when we feel something in our own body it's a reflection of what's going on in the other person i think mm -hmm. we call them uh, mirror neurons yeah, mirror neurons that's right and and so i'll i'll talk with with groups of men about when you walk by somebody who's in a really bad mood, it resonates through your body. And you want to be aware and listen to this because it's not your bad mood. You don't have to take it on. You can go, whoa, what the hell is this? <laughs> right? And, and Some dirty energy. Yeah, it's like, oh, that's not mine. <laughs> What's going on for you? And because it needs expression. A lot of the time, you know, Many of us grew up not knowing what to do with any, and then we just come and get into a bad mood. Or you know, the flip side is we're around somebody who's really excited and passionate, and that rubs off on the people around them. Well, it's good to be aware of what what actually is going on there. Oh, we're we're picking this up from this other person, and so for us to be more emotionally grounded, we have to be aware of this stuff. So we listen with our body as well as uh, our, our head. I, I think of it like um, we have about 100 billion neurons in our, our brain, and we can see way more that we can uh, and hear way more than we are aware of. Mm -hmm. So all this stuff hits us, and we're aware of a certain percentage of it, but the and the and some of the, uh, the rest shows up in our body, and our job is to to be aware of that because it's like, you know, we're like a tuning fork, right? Something buzzes over here and it resonates through us. If we're more aware of that, if we're more connected, then we can listen uh, much more deeply. And and I, are you saying too, uh, the, to delineate, because if you're walking by someone who's in a bad mood, and I think it is important to uh, reiterate or express that, the ability to feel other people's feelings is a really beautiful skill set. 
if you can delineate their feelings from your feelings. So if you walk by someone who's in a bad mood, then all of a sudden you're like, shit, I'm in a bad mood because Tom's in a bad mood. And then fuck him. Sudden, <laughs> like, fuck this guy giving me these feelings. But being able to recognize then if you're by like Tony Robbins and you're being motivated, you know, and pumped up, that those might be feelings you actually do want to allow within you, the energizing, the but to recognize that there are some feelings you don't want to allow cross the barriers of who you are. So I'm sitting in a, uh, I'm sit- sitting in a, a landmark uh, event, and I'm sitting beside a woman. There's probably a hundred of us in the audience, maybe more. And they ask us to talk to our whoever's beside us. So this woman talks to me, and she says, "I sold my house, and I." Felt like I was bullied into selling it for $50,000 less than I wanted and blah, 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 right? And then our two minutes is up and we look back at the front and I feel this thing right in my solar plexus. I'm like, well, what is that? Go, oh, that's shame. And I lean over and I whisper, well, you're feeling shame, aren't you? And she looks at me and says, yeah, that's exactly what I'm feeling. All right, good, because I was thinking, that's not mine. What the hell is this? <laughs> and then I felt something rising up from my solar plexus, and I leaned over and I said, and disgust. <laughs> and she says, yeah, thanks so much. Because when I expressed it, it, it moved through me. And then I'm like, oh, that feels a little better, because that yeah. wasn't my shit. That was hers. So being able to label it too, to be able to like recognize, oh, I got this feeling in my stomach or my chest or my throat. It feels like anger, disgust, happiness, joy, like whatever you're labeling. So is that, that's the practice, eh? Like getting back in your body, starting to pay attention, maybe through meditation, that's a really great way to become your own observer. Start to label where you feel it in your body and what that emotion is. And there's, and there's always more depth because there's history mm. of feeling that emotion and what we've done with it historically, what our, our family did with that historically. So there's part of us that wants to just like, whoa, don't go there. That's just like, you don't go there. Yeah. And then the other, hopefully the, the part that's been more healed and is more open, it's like, oh, there you're feeling disgust or shame. And oh, you need to express that and say that out loud, and it it needs it needs movement, and that's actually healthy. We can do that in a way that's healthy. We don't have to just stay silent about it, or just tell the person to fuck off, get away from me, or or judge the person, or what have you. It's like oh, so we can be understanding, we can have compassion for ourselves, for the other person, and. Uh, and practicing that, we just get better at it. Like my, uh, another, another example of that is I'm sitting beside my daughter, and she's in grade six. And she got bullied in her school, and the school did a terrible job of it. And so her mom and, and I moved her to a different school. And I was sitting at spring break, so she was off for a, a week or two. And she was at my place, and we're sitting on the couch. And I say, how are you feeling? And she looks at me like any kid says, good. He said, I don't think you're feeling good. He said, I think, you know, you're feeling something in your belly. There's there's some anxiety in there. And the, your chest is a little constricted. And you feel some tension in there. And she looks up at me with these big eyes and said, how did you know that? 
Because <laughs> we're connected. I can feel that in my own body. And you're going to this school. It makes sense that you feel some anxiety, that you're worried about how things are going to unfold, and that you have a little bit of fear. And that's where those things typically show up. You know, and I've had a lot of conversations like this with, with my daughter and, and mm. you know, and, and having those conversations deepens the connection. It takes a bit of risk for one person to say out loud, you know, you know, this is what's, what I'm noticing. Is, is that what you're feeling? Like, what's going on for you? Because when we can express these things, then they don't build up. And because I think most people don't touch into those things enough so that they're aware of them. And then they just build up or they come out sideways. They, we show up late for things or we get upset if anybody else shows up late and we become controlling or anxious or what have you. It's amazing. The one, the giving permission to your daughter by expressing it and labeling it with her. I think that's such a cool way to allow your child to be seen, like to give them that experience when they're like afraid of touching a certain feeling or expressing one or don't know how it works. What a cool opportunity. You know, I, I don't remember that as a child, and although it might have happened, I don't want to say it didn't. Um, I don't remember that, but I do remember being afraid of expressing anger and then that manifesting as uh, a young adult, as a teenager, where I didn't have good boundaries with women or actually just in general where I was afraid to say like, that's not okay or that hurt me. Um, and so it came out more as nice guy kind of behavior, you know, like I'll yeah. just give more, I'll just take care of them more. I'll try to fix more. I'll buy them a rose, you know, or whatever it is mm -hmm. a way of compensating a way of meeting my need for security with, by satisfying a want, you know, like, um, not dealing with anything head on <laughs> until I have, yeah. rather than I choose to, which I think is one of the biggest shifts is like moving from, I have to have this conversation to, I choose to, which is so much more empowering and man, it's, it's still a, an ongoing learning, but that was probably one of the most powerful shifts I ever made was from have to, to choose to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, uh, Remember my first conflict with my partner, uh, Alejandra. I, I actually don't remember what the conflict is about, but I, I remember saying to myself, oh, okay, this is, this is interesting. Let's see how this unfolds. I, because I was curious to find out how we were going to deal with the conflict that had come up. Because if it turned into a big drama fest, I was like, okay, see you later. I've had enough of this. I don't, I don't need more of this in my life. I'm trying to, uh, I want to be with somebody who can, uh, I can resolve conflict with, and then you don't have to talk about it again. Because I've been in relationships where something happens in the first, say, I don't know, two days of the relationship, and then you never stop hearing about it forever. <laughs> and I don't want to do that anymore. I'd, I'd had enough, but that that's not uncommon. People just won't have those conversations, and uh, and it, it makes it difficult. I sometimes give uh, homework to people, and I, I say say to this said to this guy recently, okay, so when you're with your partner, I want you to practice eye gazing, and then I go into describing. It's just looking into each other's eyes, 
not trying to get anywhere, just being there and noticing. The eyes are a, a window. There, there's a, a source of vulnerability. And if you can be with your partner in that vulnerability, you'll feel closer afterwards. And he came back to me and says, yeah, my girlfriend won't do that. And I thought to myself, I actually, I probably said, Alain, oh, that's not a good sign. Mm-hmm. Because if they're not willing to open up like that, then it's going to be next to impossible to, to get anywhere. And I mean, they, they could have opened up in other ways, but, but they did. Whereas I have, sometimes I'll work with couples uh, online and I'll have them look into each other's eyes because I'm thinking about one couple. And, and he just, he just starts feeling everything mm. when he really connects with her. And I, and there are a couple that are, I can see that they're really in love with each other. And when they do this eye gazing, their whole perception changes. They humanize each other. Yeah, they see within. When, when the anger rises up and we start moving more toward an aggressive response, we dehumanize the other. And so if we can humanize the other, connect with compassion, but really connect with their eyes in, in, you know, in a loving way, then, uh, then the perspective changes and everything changes. And so then when, when people really look into each other's eyes when they're in conflict, they're way more likely to do something uh, productive with it. Uh, w- one more story. There's a, there's a couple, and they've been married for 60 years. They've been married for 60 years, and, and this guy's interviewing them, and he says, well, you guys must have gone through a lot of conflict all those years. And, but you're still clearly... Uh, a loving uh, couple, you're affectionate toward each other. What what do you do when you had conflict? And they said, oh, well, we would go and sit at the kitchen table across from each other and we would hold hands. So they would look into each other's eyes. They would have physical contact. And then they would talk about whatever needed to be dealt with. And having that ritual and facing each other like that meant that they were a lot more likely you know that's a that's a courageous thing to do that is so courageous because most people would be avoidant of that especially in conflict mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah I, I think... whereas like conflict is this source of growth if we take the courage to really allow ourselves to have that vulnerable uh, connection with what, whatever has gone on and, and each other hard i remember working with this group and i made them do uh I asked them to, but let's be honest, I made them, I made them do eye contact and they were all married for probably a minimum 15, 20 years. And they were all in their fifties and sixties. And it was interesting to watch, um, because a lot of these were like stoic men too. And, and power, you know, business owners, that kind of stuff. And it was so fascinating to watch the tears in the men's eyes because they had not a lot of them had not looked at their partner with that level of intention for some time, both the men and the women, not just the men. And so it was, in, it was just so cool to watch people feel seen for the first time in years because it's yeah. so easy in a relationship to get caught in the, you know, the stuff about kids and schedules and work and all the things that we forget that we're always a couple first, you know, that it's work. It's easy to grow apart when you're not putting in in investments in your relationship and investments in yourself and 
that is to actually get to a place where you're in conflict and you can actually get to a place where you're more in love after because you've seen the other person. You've actually, you know, helped them heal a relationship to an emotion, which that's why I love your work and your partner's work because it really is so much about. I I have I formally had a very disconnected experience with anger. When I got angry, I got nice or I got quiet, um, and I smiled. A lot of my like humor was used to dismiss uh, anger, you know. And I knew right. that I could use sarcasm <laughs> as a way, a weapon, and I got really good at it. And when I actually accessed rage for the first time in a safe, controlled environment. Um, and then started going to boxing to just allow energy to move through me. I felt like a whole bunch. I don't know if this is your experience, but my like with clients, but my own personal experience with my own anger and rage was that behind it was a lot of grief. Like I remember when I had um, an extreme expression of rage, you know, going to the edge uh, in in a group. I guess it was like a group therapy experience. Uh, I just cried. It just like I got to the edge of exasperation and then I just fucking sobbed. Yeah. Uh, going back and forth between uh, the rage and the tears isn't, isn't unusual. I think they're very closely connected, right? The sadness, the loss, the, the grief. And it takes a lot of courage to go deeply into that. And at some level, I think we have to fight ourselves to get into it because there's so much training not to go there. Mm -hmm. I was terrified of, of, of rage. I didn't even know that I was terrified of anger. I mean, when I was in grade 12, I got attacked by a gang at a party and I got 44 stitches in my head. And wow. um, that made me very afraid of like aggression, you know, like, Mm -hmm. I'd never, I didn't know these people. There was no reason I should have been hit with a pi pipe in the head, uh, but I was. <clears throat> and it was, um, it just made me further, more afraid. And the only way I could really let out anger was in sports where I could like in football, hit someone real hard or like in soccer, go into a hard tackle or like just become more competitive. Mm -hmm. But not, you know, uh, those are healthy on in the constraints um, of sport. But where else can you express it if your partner upsets you and you're not saying anything or you're being quiet? I just drove faster. Isn't that so ridiculous? Like I remember shifting gears and being more assertive on corners. Well, that's really going to accomplish a lot, you know? Yeah. Like notice how yeah. mad I am right now by how I'm driving so you can ask me if I'm okay and then I'll tell you everything's fine. <laughs> so not productive. Yeah. That was exactly the dance that I did though. Yeah, well, it's interesting. A lot of guys really pride themselves in a being able to drive from this town to this town in like, you know, the shortest amount like a of time. Record time. Yeah, yeah. Like, well, that means you're driving like a hundred miles an hour the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> you're proud of this. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, well, I mean, part of me can relate to that because speed is is fun but you know on a on a bigger level oh yeah i'm an adult <laughs> i don't need to risk all this just to set a new land speed record it's, uh, <laughs> it's not my job either yeah like it's not like i'm a speed uh i'm not a race car driver yeah 
but yeah, like for your work, what is the, so, you know, we recognized a bit earlier, you talked about how like people who experience a lot of repressed anger might come out as um, illness, might come out as uh, re uh, resentment and sarcasm and things like that. And I'm sure people listening can really relate with that. And then it might come out as overt anger, like uncontrolled uh, aggression, right? That's the other yeah. side of it, which... You yeah, know. well, a lot, a lot of the time it's it's built up. And when somebody comes to see us, there's been a, a big blow up. And usually in the days and weeks and sometimes months or even years leading up to this, the person hasn't been sleeping well. Uh, there's a whole bunch of unresolved conflicts that just aren't going anywhere. Their in-laws came and stayed for three months. Um, That'll do it. Uh, it, is not, it isn't unusual that somebody died. Uh, they changed jobs or they lost a job. But usually there's a, a number of things that have led them to had a real, a real elevated baseline. In other words, their heart rate isn't uh, in a restful place. When they wake up in the morning, they're not like, awesome, here's another day. One guy, one guy who was depressed, was telling me he said he'd wake up every morning, and the first thing he'd he'd say as he opened his eyes was, "Fuck, here's another day." <laughs> wow, and that that was the launching pad for the day. And one day he realized, you know, maybe this isn't actually helping me, and started to do things differently. Um, because uh, you know, and and so our job is to notice these things, but. Typically, when somebody comes to me, they haven't slept well, they haven't been eating healthy, they haven't been uh, getting their usual exercise, they haven't been doing things that give them inspiration, you know, engaging in, in either hobbies or getting out into nature, uh, they haven't been meditating, um, they stopped doing the things that added this stuff to their life because they were focused on the problems, so they come our way. And all their focus has been is on what's wrong. And if that's all you focus on, that becomes your life. Your life just becomes this host of problems. And sometimes it's really healthy for the person to find a way to step back and take a breath and, and gain some perspective. Sometimes that's taking a holiday. Sometimes it's uh, meditating or breathing. We lead people through all sorts of breathing exercises, but it's doing something to step back and gain perspective. Yeah, so being able to one become begin to become an observer of your experience, building that skill set of of um, meditation, checking in with your body, the feelings you have. I do, yeah, especially that stored up amount of conflict. Because I think you were saying by the time someone comes to you, it's like they've already been like there's been a lot stored up. They're already they're not being proactive generally. Yeah. And I see that a lot. I know in the research on couples therapy, I believe that by the time a couple sees a therapist, it's something like six years after all the trouble has started. Like it's so far down as opposed to us being proactive as a couple. You know, in the East Coast, everyone has a therapist in New York, you know, they're like, oh, I'm going to go see my therapist. And they visit them probably more than their mom, you know, but in the West Coast, we don't or, or just, I would say, outside of New York sort of therapy culture, um, we don't tend to have that. Like, I remember hearing uh, a couple guys talking and they were like, well, he's like, ah, we might go see a, a therapist. And the guy's like, but nothing's wrong. 
with your relationship. And I thought, isn't that so true? We believe that something's wrong. I've heard plenty of people say like, hey, let's go to a therapist or a coach or whatever uh, when they're about to get married or they just got married. And the person's like, so we've already failed because they've associated um, getting emotional wellness with being emotionally unwell, you know, or being broken. You don't have to be broken to want to fix something. You can start at a baseline and just get better at things. But, you know, we haven't normalized that. I, you know, it's nice to see that men are writing listening on, on the communication board. And I'd love for us as humans to get to a place where we're being proactive about relational awareness and relational wellness mm-hmm. and communication. Because, I mean, what else will change your life more than learning how to communicate? I don't think anything. Yeah. Well, I, I remember my dad saying, business comes first. And me as a kid thinking, I don't know. I don't think that's actually a really good way to put things. <laughs> yeah, like you see all the messaging that happens in that. And in in the access, because I'm interested of like, for me, boxing has been a really great way to get to know anger more and to be more comfortable with it. And the other one has been, um, uh, because there's not a lot of places you can yell without people being worried about you yelling, you know, like common caring, especially as yep. a woman, you know. So I often will just go to the edge of exasperation in my car. Mm-hmm. But is there a certain way that you, like, what do you recommend to people if they're listening and they're saying, you know what, maybe I have a dysfunctional or unhealthy relationship with anger or no relationship with anger. What can they do? What are the resources that someone can tap into? Well, one of the things is to write about it. Write about it and notice where it is in your body. Notice what happens when the anger rises up. Is it in your belly? Is it in your chest or your your solar plexus, uh, your jaw? And get to know this better. There's a lot of subtlety there. And then noticing what happens when the anger starts to rise up. What happens to your thoughts? Uh, do you start using words like always or never? Because that's typically the, the beginning of the argument is you always or you never. Uh, yeah. That's not true. And <laughs> There's a few you know, times I haven't. Things things move on uh, from that way. Um on the resources page of our website at angerman.online, there's all sorts of podcasts and uh, articles. And there's a couple of videos where I'm standing beside a flip chart going through a lot of the stuff that we cover in that first session in the group. Oh, awesome. And when, okay. And when, and when guys come back to the second session, they'll often say, Oh, I was thinking about the arousal cycle, that graph you drew on that flip chart. And I noticed that in myself and in other people. And that noticing meant that they did something different with it. Mm -hmm. So most of the guys come back to session, or the women in the women's group, um, come back to the second session saying, wow, things have improved. And it's because they've been noticing, because they've paid attention to this stuff. And of course, Going to talk to somebody about it uh, is, can be uh, extremely helpful. Yeah, to finally and, express it, to finally share, to finally be seen, yeah. to finally be noticed as well. Modeling yep. that for someone to say, hey, your emotions are actually valid. Yeah, I talked to a guy last week in uh, in Florida who, who saw me uh, over 
Skype or, or FaceTime from uh, the inside of his truck. <laughs> and it had been years since he, you know, he hadn't talked to anybody about this stuff. And, you know, by the end of that hour, uh, by the end of that hour session, like he just felt a lot better. Like it wasn't stored inside as long as it stays a secret in us or it only comes out in an unhealthy blaming or attacking manner. As long as it, it it's only doing those things, it, it's toxic. It's just unhealthy in us. And we need to move it. The emotions just need expression through writing, through talking, through uh, acting, uh, through exercise, yeah. exercise, getting out into nature, going for a swim in the ocean. If you're near cold water, you know, it just clears things. And we need to do those things that help this stuff move through us. Uh, there's lot, lots of different ways to do it, but uh, it, 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 we need that expression with somebody else. We need to be heard, to be seen, to be understood. Uh, ideally, to get better with that, if you have a partner with your partner or with family or, or friends. Um, the more this stuff stays hidden or secret inside us, the worse it is for us. Well, and so many people have so many locked up feelings because they feel guilty for feeling a certain way. Like, I'm not feeling attracted to my partner. I'm angry at my parent, but all they've ever done is given me stuff, you know, like taking care of me. That we have so many conflicting feelings that we should <laughs> feel a certain way, but we do. I hear people say all the time stuff like, well, I should be over this by now, but you're not. I shouldn't be upset by this, but you are. Mm -hmm. So how do we embrace that and invite it? And, um, you know, people recognizing that your emotion is just so filled with intelligence. It's filled with movement, emote to evoke motion. You know, that's what emotion does is it moves us. It allows us to change our lives. You know, instead of sitting in a life filled with sadness, how can you change your life so it doesn't feel so sad? You know, like all these different, there's different feelings that, we need to invite into our lives. And I love the work you do that it is inviting probably the one of the ones, yeah, if not the one that we are most afraid of expressing because it's often meant aggression. So I love that you're normalizing that it can be clean expressions of anger. Well, and, and, and every emotion, whether it's anger or shame or sadness or loss, we can, uh, we can do, or, or joy or even uh, exuberance, we can do something constructive or something destructive. And we have both in us, always. We have this potential. So part of us wants to keep it a secret. And part of us is like, well, actually, I think that the, the intelligent, heart-connected thing would be, I need to take the courage up to, to share this somewhere. Yeah. But there's always both. Part of me wants to react as I'm driving or whatever the situation might be. And the other part if, uh, is, it, you know, when this too shall pass or, you know, in the big picture, how much is this really going to matter? And most of the time, it's not really going to matter in a month or a year or a decade from now. This is irrelevant. What am I getting so upset about it? So if we can acknowledge that both parts are in us, and be very aware that part of us is going to want to do something destructive or harmful. And that's okay. We don't have to let that part run us. 
But if we ignore it and pretend that we don't have any of that, then it's more in secret and is more likely to actually influence that. Yeah, to spill out, you know, every unspoken word gets spoken in some way or another. Mm-hmm. whether it's within our body or just in how we, as you said, show up late, text, don't text back, don't, you know, like we communicate our pissed offness in many other ways. And a lot of us are sneaky. We've been doing it our whole lives that way. Oh, and, and that sneakiness may have been happening for generations. Yes, yes, absolutely. Like, especially, you know, you look at the model of relationship has been very much patriarchy, you know, and mm-hmm. how much that is the the suppression of, the female voice, but also the suppression of male emotion too. You know, it's not one-sided that people weren't talking about how they felt because they both felt abandoned in some sense. So I think there's a a whole slew of information that we can get from just starting to reconnect to our feelings. Yeah. Well, and even, you know, when the the patriarchy or, or being chauvinistic, it's like we're missing out on a whole part of ourselves. It rips off men and women. And when we can acknowledge that both exist, that part of us sure might want to be uh, angry or even aggressive, but we, we don't want to suppress that that exists within us. We, we don't want to be violent or aggressive either, but we want to acknowledge that that's there. And then we can do something with it because we're acknowledging it because there's this other part of us that actually wants to be a good human. And that, you know, we're, we're not either, or we're, we're always both. And so when guys get together and talk about all this stuff out loud, they almost always, somebody in the room will say, well, I'm glad I'm not the only one. Mm, right? Feeling I'm not the only one, or, uh, I'm not alone in this. Feeling witnessed. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's powerful, that's powerful stuff. Well, okay. So thank you so much for expressing and sharing all of this with us. Um, I would love for people to know how can they find you? Where do they go? Angerman.online or angerman.ca. And I'm on Instagram. Look for Moose Anger Management. I'm all, I'm all over Instagram and, uh, and all my information is in, in both places. Uh, 604-723-5134 is the phone number. Uh, But the website has lots of, uh, lots of information and videos. uh, Perfect. We'll link it all out so people can find you in the show notes. And thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it and appreciate it. I love the conversation. So thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. 